Well, let's now open up our Bibles together to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we're picking up where we left off last week, and we are going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. So we're picking up in verse 23, the last verse of the chapter. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, this is the word of the Lord. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you, Lord, for the good gift of the book of Romans that we have been drinking deeply from these last many months. And Pray, Lord, that you would be glorified this morning as we consider your word together. I pray, Lord, that you would accomplish what only you can accomplish by your Spirit's working through your supernatural word, Lord, causing blinded eyes to see and deaf ears to hear, giving life to dead hearts, transforming your people into the likeness of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for myself this morning as I proclaim your word. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, Be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. It was late in the summer of 1914, Ernest Shackleton and 27 other men left England, set sail on a trip you may have heard of named the Endurance. And the plan was to disembark at some point and to cross Antarctica on foot. I don't know why you'd want to do such a thing. Seems like a bad idea from the outset, and it proved to be a very bad idea. By January of 1915, when their ship was still 100 miles off of land, off from the location where they planned to get out of the boats and start their journey on foot, the Endurance became hopelessly trapped in ice. And then the ice pack in which they were literally frozen solid and stuck began to carry them just further and further away from land. Shackleton and his crew ended up living on the Endurance, on that ship, frozen in the ice pack, adrift at sea for eight months, until after eight months, the ship finally broke apart from the force of the ice, and the ship sank, and for five more months, they lived on the ice pack with no ship, just surviving off of whatever supplies they'd been able to scavenge from the ship. For more than a year then, they suffered the most terrible conditions we could imagine, horrifying conditions, floating helplessly alone on a pack of ice. The next spring, though, when when the ice began to thaw and melt around them, Shackleton and a few of his men, a handful of them, were able to get on lifeboats that they had saved from the ship and go for help, go for safety. And eventually, they reached a nearby island. They were able to eventually sail back to the ice pack and rescue the remainder of the men, but that process took another several more months. And one author, considering this amazing and harrowing story of survival and disaster, made three comparisons between Shackleton's ice pack and sin. These three conclusions, and maybe you've heard them before, sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. Sin will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. Sin will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. 
It was while Shackleton was, was frozen, stuck on that pack of ice, floating adrift at sea, watching his ship be swallowed up by the ice that he wrote these words in his journal. The ship is pretty near the end. And what the ice gets, the ice keeps. What a, what a statement of despair and horror. What the ice gets, the ice keeps. We have been seeing what the Apostle Paul has told us in Rome. We can draw the same conclusion about sin. What sin gets, sin keeps. That's been the message so far in Romans chapter 6. You are either enslaved to sin, and if you belong to sin, you belong to it forever. Or you're enslaved to God, and if you belong to him, you belong to him forever. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul has been making contrast, right? Right from the start. There's two different ways, and only two. There are two different gospels. There's the gospel of man and wickedness that leads only to death. And there is the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the gracious gospel. There are two Adams. We're either in the first Adam or we're in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two masters, two kinds of slavery. He's contrasted what we were before salvation with what we are now in Christ. And what we once were was a slave to sin, hopelessly bound. Every part of us, our mind, our affections, our will, totally enslaved, totally in bondage, completely held captive to obey our cruel master sin. But Paul has shown us that Jesus Christ intervened into that situation. He is the one who stepped into the slave market of our sin and redeemed us out of our bondage with his own blood through the miracle of regeneration. He's even made our dead hearts to live. He didn't just stop there. He's united us to himself in such a radical way that we have been transferred out of the slavery we were born into and that we were into by choice. And he's transferred us into a whole new kind of slavery with a new master, a gracious master, a kind master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So now as we come to this last verse of Romans 6, Paul is going to complete this contrast that he's been making in Romans 6 between slavery and to sin and slavery to Christ. Verse 23 is really the summation of everything Paul's been saying here in Romans chapter six. And he gives us one final contrast and that is the contrast of outcomes. There are two different outcomes of these two different kinds of slavery. There are two different paydays to use the kind of language Paul uses here. Slavery to sin leads to a sure outcome. That outcome every time is death. But just as surely, slavery to Christ leads to life. And so this this little sentence here that we're looking at this morning, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, is really a one verse, a one sentence summary of the gospel itself. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says, 21 words in my English translation, 19 in the Greek. This one phrase has been memorized by millions of children in Sunday school. It has been a key verse in gospel tracts and studies for centuries. Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the late 1800s called this verse the golden sentence of truth worthy to be written across the sky. This sentence gives to us the gospel But Paul here is setting before us, even in this verse, death on the one hand and life on the other hand. 
We've seen this already in the book of Romans that to receive the wages of sin, to receive the wages of eternal death, we don't actually need to do anything. It's not as though we need to be born and then live just horrible lives. It's not as though you sitting here, if you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, need to do something radical to inherit this paycheck at the end of your life. We're born in sin. We are dead in sin. We are condemned in our solidarity with Adam. And then we prove it for the whole rest of our lives in word, in thought, in deed. But if we want to receive a different paycheck, if we want to receive this eternal life that Paul's talking about, Paul has already shown us we've got to be broken free from that solidarity in Adam that, that we're born into. We must be united instead to Christ, who, who says this in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even though he dies. And so eternal death already belongs to every man. Eternal life is found in Jesus Christ alone. And that's what Paul's calling us to consider here. Paul is calling us in this verse to consider the end of our lives. That's not something we like to do very often, to consider the end of our lives. Maybe only jokingly making some statement about when I'm dead and gone, about, but we don't like to actually think about our lives ending. But it's something that we must do because there is a day that is fixed by God when you will die. There's a day fixed by God when I will die. God has decreed the exact number of our days. We will not live one day more than he has ordained for us. We must consider that. We must view our lives in light of that. We must all think seriously about these things because there's not a one of us that's guaranteed even one more day. We don't know what that number of days is that God has decreed for us. We all know the stories, too many of them, of people who appeared to be in the prime of life and they were here one minute and gone the next. The Bible tells us of the irrevocable eternity we're going to face when that moment comes for us. The end of all unbelievers, every single one of them, the ones who seem like good people and the ones who are clearly not, the end of all unbelievers is destruction, what the Bible calls the second death. But the end of all believers, the ones who look like good people and the ones we don't think look like very good people, is salvation. It's eternal life. So let's look now at this powerful statement that the Apostle Paul makes in verse 23. He, he starts with very difficult news. The wages of sin is death. Jonathan Edwards, that great colonial preacher, said the gospel must be revealed as bad news before it can be good news. He's right about that. The gospel, the good news, begins with very, very bad news. And this statement Paul makes, the wages of sin is death, is very bad news. Think about that. The wages of sin is death. And now think about your life. Think about your track record. Have you ever been dishonest? Have you ever been a gossip? Have you ever been unrighteously angry? Have you ever just thought those things even if you didn't express them? The wages of sin is death. This is horrifyingly bad news. Paul pulls no punches here though. 
The unforgiven sinner will one day be paid according to his sin. The, the idea here in the word that Paul uses is the unredeemed are paid every single day of their lives, the wages of death. And then there's one big balloon payment coming at the very end. That's, that's the words Paul's using. This word wage literally means payoff. It referred to the daily food ration that a Roman soldier received for being in the Roman army. It was the, the daily currency of the Roman army. It's the payment of wages to one who has worked hard to earn those wages and is being paid exactly what they deserve. And so wages are the exact opposite of a gift. A gift is the total opposite of wages. Wages are earned. In other words, they're owed. Gifts are unearned. Gifts are freely given. That's why any of us who have had children, if we give them a gift and they are ungrateful for it and they just seem to have like, I deserved this and more, we're kind of mildly put off by that, are we not? Because a gift by its very nature means you don't have to give it. You don't deserve it. So for example, if, if your paycheck, your paycheck that you get, those of you that are, are, are employed and gaining paychecks every week or every two weeks, that paycheck is owed to you, is it not? If you work a 40-hour week, you deserve how many hours worth of pay? 40 hours, obviously. And if you only get paid 25 hours for your 40 hours of work, you've got a legal case, right? You can actually take your employer to court and win because they're not paying you what you are owed. But you're also not deserving of a check for 60 hours. You don't get to demand that of them. You can't, if you tried to take them to court for not paying you for 60 hours for doing 40 hours work, you'd be laughed out of court. A workman's wages should be exactly what he has earned. Anything less is unfair. Anything more ceases to be wages. It becomes a gift. So Paul says here, just as any soldier, or we could say employee, is paid according to their labor, the unbelieving sinner will be paid exactly what he deserves. His pay will be nothing more, nothing less than what he has earned for himself. And what has he earned for himself? Paul has told us in Romans, he's been under the mastery of sin. He has been a servant to sin. He has lived for sin every day of his life. He has been working for sin from the moment of his birth. His sin is lawlessness. It is rebellion against God. It is anarchy. It's a treason that has earned a just wage of death. The unbeliever will indeed physically die one day will on that day experience what the word of God calls the second death, eternal separation from God's grace in unending conscious torment in the lake of fire. But Paul's using a word that even means more than that, more than just that last day, that final and eternal judgment that comes to them. Paul's word here actually also includes the actual daily experience of death every single day. The wages of sin is death. And this death is paid out by the wrath of God. Paul, Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He says that this is true already. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
The wrath of God is already being revealed against this kind of sin. Mankind has created flagrant sin against a holy God, and God's wrath is already being poured out on mankind. When we look at what's going on in our world today, it is right to say that this will lead to judgment, but it is even more true to say this is judgment. What's going on in our world today is the judgment of God, and it will lead to even greater judgment. That's what Paul's language is pointing to. As sinners continue to reject God and serve sin, they are on a downward spiral of wickedness and rebellion. Paul says this in chapter 1, verse 24 of Romans. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. That phrase, God gave them up. It means he handed them over to sin. All they could do was sin. All they did was sin. God handed them over to the bondage of their sin. Their mind, their heart, their will, their desires, all thoroughly corrupted and twisted and bound to sin. He goes on then in verse 26 of chapter 1. For this reason, God gave them up. To dishonorable passions. Some translations say shameful lusts. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is the judgment of God is what Paul's saying. This is what it looks like to have been handed over by God to sin. And he says in verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what, not, what ought not to be done. Debased mind means a depraved, a, a twisted, a corrupted mind. Paul then goes on in chapter one in the next verses to, to give a long list of the sins that we see coming from this kind of debased mind, from this kind of person that has been handed over to wickedness. The human race, Paul says, is filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil and envy and murder and strife and deceit and disobedience and malice and gossip and slander. And he adds in disobedience to your parents, kids, and hatred for God. He says they're insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Does this not describe the world that we live in today? This is what Paul had just described that we saw last week in chapter 6, verse 19, where he says, Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. This is what sin does. Sin, sin won't settle to have part of you, sin wants all of you. You, you, you do get pulled into this downward spiral of filth and lawlessness and corruption, ever-increasing wickedness and shame and condemnation. And there's more because that's just the first installment of the paycheck. The balloon payment hasn't even come yet. That's just the first part of it. Upon physical death, the balloon payment comes. The final payday comes. And the check on that day is eternal Death. And make no mistake about it, the sinner will be paid in full. There will be not one thing missing from that paycheck when it is given. Eternal death 
is an existence that is described in the Bible as being so terrible, so hideous, so horrifying that mankind tries to ignore it. It's not polite to talk about these things in any kind of setting. I heard a story of of a kid in our local schools who was talking to their friends about, about God and about his word, and they happened to mention that hell was a real thing, and the teacher came over and told them, you're not allowed to talk about that here at school. It's too horrifying. It's too terrible. Many Christians don't even want to believe it. They don't want to believe that there's a hell. They don't want to believe that anyone would go there, and they for sure don't want to believe that it is eternal. Many preachers won't even talk about it. I can remember coming up as a young person in the ministry hearing this. You don't talk about this. Here's our list of creepy things in the Bible you're not allowed to talk about. Hell, the blood of Jesus. Any kind of dragon that might show up at the end. Don't talk about any of those things. That weirds people out. Well, it doesn't matter if many preachers don't want to talk about it. The Bible talks about it. It is everlasting, conscious hell. There is no better word for it than hell. Scripture makes it perfectly clear this condemnation is eternal. It's not a temporary thing. It's not a thing you can get out of one day. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up its dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, tormented day and night forever. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus Christ himself will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. When they suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might, In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus, who spoke more of hell than anyone else in the Bible, which, by the way, should tell us that these experts in church growth who tell you you shouldn't talk about hell don't know what they're talking about. He says this, Matthew 25, verse 41. And he will say to those on his left, he being himself, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then in verse 46, he says, and these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Charles Hodge points out that this word eternal as it is applied to hell is the most emphatic word in the Greek language to designate a period of time. It is literally an age that never, ever ends. And 64 times in the New Testament, the exact same Greek word that describes the eternal nature of hell is used to describe the eternal nature of heaven. Just like we saw here in Matthew 25. These will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. What does that mean? 
It means hell is an eternal, physical, real state of separation from God, of torment, just as heaven is an eternal, physical, real state of union with God. If hell is not eternal and conscious, heaven is not eternal and conscious. Charles Spurgeon said this, there's a real fire in hell as truly as you have a real body. Only it will not consume you, though it will torture you. Your body will be prepared by God in such a way that it will burn forever without being consumed. With your nerves laid raw by searing flame, yet never desensitized for all its raging fury, the acrid smoke of the fumes searing your lungs and choking out your breath, you will cry out for the mercy of death, but it shall never, never, never come. What sin gets, sin keeps. Sin promises happiness. Sin promises freedom. Sin promises real life. But it only delivers condemnation. It only delivers bondage. It only delivers death and torment. And every sinner will receive exactly what he deserves. It will be perfect justice. Righteous and holy judgment from God. There won't be any arguments on that day. There won't be, won't be any claims that this isn't fair. Paul's told us in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, that on that day, every mouth will be shut. Judgment will be delivered. The wages of sin is death. This is the second death from which there is no acquittal. There are no arguments to be made. But friend, in God's mercy, that does not need to be the verdict of your life. That's why Paul gives us this warning. That's why it's so foolish for us. If God sees fit in his word to warn us, if our Lord Jesus Christ himself spoke of this more than anyone else in the Bible, how foolish it is to not give the warning that scripture gives. How wicked it is. This sentence doesn't stop with these first words. The wages of sin is death, hard stop, end of story. No, that's not what it says. We've said many times when we see that word, but in a sentence, we know what it does. It completely modifies the first half of the sentence and turns it upside down. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. If all men are sinners bound up in sin, cemented in their solidarity with Adam, unable to escape, not even desiring to escape, condemned to die eternally for sins. How could anyone be saved from God's wrath and the hell that we deserve? If, if each person will be judged according to what he has done, how could anyone be saved? And the answer is found in only one place, Christ Jesus our Lord. The Son of God became a sinless man. And this God-man died on the cross in the place of elect sinners. And in him, we died. We were buried. We were raised to new life. That's the gospel. This is the good news. The good news starts with terrible news. But it goes on to tell us, the most glorious news 
in the whole world. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us. That's how we can be saved. What's this record of debt? What's this certificate that Paul says was nailed to the cross? It's the judgment of condemnation that we stood under. It's the list of every single sin we have ever committed in word, in thought, in deed. And it's not just a list of our sins. It is the, the statement of the divine punishment against our sins. It is warranted because of our sins. In, in the Greco-Roman world, a record of debt was a written note of indebtedness. It listed everything that was owed, everything that must be repaid. And when the debt was finally paid off, the lender would take that certificate of debt and they would write or stamp one word across it. The word may be familiar to, uh, to you, to tell us day. It's finished. Paid in full. That word might be familiar to us because as Jesus gave up his life on the cross, that's the exact word he cried out. To tell us day. It is finished. There's a record of debt listing every sin that you have ever committed. Every idle word, every sinful thought, every sinful action, every righteous action you should have taken but didn't take, all of it. That record lists the punishment that is due to you, and that punishment is an eternity in hell where you will never be able to atone for your sin. You'll never get that debt paid off for all of eternity. But God the Father took that record of debt for every person for whom Jesus Christ died and he nailed it to the cross of Christ. And when Jesus shed his blood for us, our debt was paid in full. It's no coincidence that he uttered the word that he uttered. God didn't just sweep our sin under the rug. He couldn't do that and be righteous. No, he took all of our guilt, all of our condemnation, all of the judgment that was due to us, and he laid it upon the Lord Jesus Christ who paid our debt in full for us on the cross, taking all of that upon himself and crediting to us his perfect righteousness. Jesus, by his perfect death on the cross, received the wages of our sin himself. And he paid our debt completely. There's no wrath left for us. For those who trust in Christ, there's no wrath left. Not one ounce, not one drop. But friend, there's not one ounce of grace apart from Jesus Christ. In exchange for our condemnation and death, he gives to us the free gift of eternal life. Notice here, Paul says, he, doesn't, he says the wages of sin is death, but when it comes to eternal life, there's no wages involved. Eternal life is a gift 
from God, not the wages for our obedience. This word gift, charisma, literally means a gift of grace, a gift undeserved, a gift of kindness and mercy. In other words, heaven is not a paycheck that you can earn with your life. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't work your way there. Hell is a paycheck that we earn with our sin. Heaven is a gift. There's only one place you can work your way into, and you don't want to be there. You can work your way into hell. You can never work your way into heaven. It's a gift of God's grace to be received by faith because it's based not on our righteousness, which is so sorely lacking. Instead, it's based on the merit and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Friends, if that doesn't drive you to grateful worship, considering what Paul says in this verse, that the wages we have earned is death, that God gifts us eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that doesn't drive you to humble and grateful worship, nothing will. We were under a death sentence. The noose was already around our neck. We were walking out and receiving the first payments of that final balloon payment to come, but by God's grace, we've been set free through Jesus Our certificate of debt paid in full. We have been delivered from the eternal condemnation that we deserve. We have been united eternally to Christ. But if you are outside of Christ, none of that is yours. The first half of this sermon belongs to you. This second part, no. If you're outside of Christ, you will pay your own debt. You will receive the paycheck that you earned. And you'll never be able to to atone for it. We need to consider this morning, in light of this, are you certain that you know the Lord? Have you come all the way to Christ? I don't mean that you've gone to church for a long time. I don't mean that other people would look at you and say, there is a good person, there's a good man, there's a good woman. Are you certain that you have come all the way to Christ? Is there sin that you're holding on to? An ungodliness, and it's not just that it rears its ugly head and you hate it, and you plead with God and you want to put it to death and you're working to put it to death. No, you don't hate it at all. You love it. You love the way it makes you feel. You don't plan to lay it down whatsoever. Friend, if you haven't, if you haven't come all the way, if you've not trusted savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ, been broken free from your solidarity with Adam, your slavery to sin, and united to Christ, the wages you have earned will be severe. The bad news is it's worse for you after this morning than it was before this morning. You've listened to the truth. You've probably heard the truth many times, in fact. You'll be even more responsible because of that. That's what Scripture tells us. Perhaps you think you can ignore the warnings. 
Perhaps you think that you will be the exception, but friend, the day is coming when you will stand before the unbending, unwavering, holy justice of God, and on that day, you will be paid what you are due. There's a famous apologist known the world over, was a, a hero in the faith to probably a good number of us in this room who passed away recently, and in recent days, it has come out that he led a double life, a duplicitous life, a life of the most depraved wickedness you could possibly imagine for years. That is crushing. It is heartbreaking. It is devastating. And all I can think is with the light he had been given, what must that moment have been like when he stood before the throne? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what other people think of you. It doesn't matter your reputation, your family background, your knowledge of Scripture. We will all stand before the throne, and if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, you'll be paid what you do. But here's the good news. You you can turn from your sin. You can run to Christ right now. If you're hearing those words and they are horrifying to you because you think that just might be you, then you can run to Christ. He's the one who died in the place of sinners. He will never, ever, ever turn away the one that comes to him in humble repentance. You, you, need, not, you not, need not figure it all out in your mind like, do, am I a chosen one? Is, is he going to accept me? He'll have you. He'll have you. His arms are open wide. He invites you to come. He invites you to trust in him. He will receive you, but you must come. You must come to him. Yes, the wages of sin is eternal death, but thank God that the gift of God is eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. May we accept this gift. May we accept the gracious gift of eternal life through the only Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, the, the, the reality is the consequences of our sin is horrifying. Lord, we, we shudder. We shudder when we think of a life lived in rebellion against you of receiving the paycheck that we have earned with our sins and we rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that great exchange that took place on the cross where now when you look at me, you don't see the record of my sin. It's been canceled, nailed to the cross. Instead, you see the perfect righteousness of your son. So I need not fear that his merit has been credited to me. Lord, who could imagine such a glorious gospel? Who could imagine such a gracious God? I pray, Lord, for each one of your people that you would cause us to again be in awe of your grace and your mercy. Lord, even as we look at the lives of others and Lord, even as I shared about this well-known man, Lord, the reality is there but for your grace is each one of us. I pray that you would keep us by your grace. We pray that you would keep us by your spirit. 
that you would cause us to live lives of obedience that show forth the fruit of salvation and repentance. And we pray, God, that you would glorify yourself in our lives and through our lives. Lord, that, that we would walk in each one of our days overwhelmed with gratefulness and joy at you and your great saving work in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do pray, Lord, for those who don't know you. I pray especially I pray especially for the one, Lord, that would sit here this morning so hardened by sin that they don't even see themselves reflected in the statements that have been made. So hardened in sin, they no longer see themselves as sinners who need to repent, that they no longer see themselves as, as one who needs to be saved, but instead they just think they've got it all together. I pray by your spirit you would break down those defenses, you would cause that heart of stone to become a heart of flesh and you and your mercy and your kindness would convict them now of sin. Let the the conviction of sin and condemnation fall hard on them that they might run to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and experience your mercy and know true joy, true peace, true hope for the very first time. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us and the grace that you have showered upon us so freely in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.